Hello, and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode will be the final in a series that is looking at the parallel between the time period of the Middle Ages through the Reformation and into the Thirty Years' War and modern times with modern shifts in the systems and structures that we are under, everything from warfare to economics to technology, all of these kinds of things. In the past two episodes, I have covered the bulk of that parallel and really set the stage for this final piece, which is looking at kind of the end effects and the after effects, looking more not necessarily in the Middle Ages and even the Reformation, but more into the Thirty Years' War and the development of the nation state and comparing that to what's actually going on right now. So if you think of a lot of these other parallels that I've been discussing in the past few episodes, I talked about the equivalence of the internet to the printing press. Well, obviously, the internet was invented and went mainstream quite a while ago, as we are recording now. And the same is true of many of these uh, same parallels that I've been laying out, changes in the education system, the economic system, all of these kinds of things. Well, the parallels to what happened after the Reformation, actually getting into the Thirty Years' War and beyond, uh, that would be looking at some time around now. And that is what this episode is all about. Then getting away from this episode, moving forward, I will be getting into some really good episodes that I am really looking forward to that will get more into this idea of historical cycles and patterns, as well as looking at the changes and the technologies and these kinds of things that are occurring now in our present day and where those are headed and what is behind those things. So that is what is coming up. I am not sure exactly the order, exactly how that's going to go. So it'll be a surprise to me as well as you, but I am definitely looking forward to those. Those will mirror content from interviews that I did about a year ago or a little more when I had Vin Armani and Allison McDowell, uh, Julianne Romanello, and Michael Vlahos. I think that was it. There might have been one or two others, but I think that was it. But uh, all of the content that was discussed in that giant block of episodes, each one of those interviews was multiple episodes a piece and the Vin Armani ones, especially the first interview I did with him was split into who knows a dozen or more episodes. It was quite an ordeal. And uh, definitely, obviously, because we took up that much time, it got into a lot of very good and interesting content. And so I will be getting into content from those interviews and the surrounding episodes that I did over a year ago, condensing all of that down and looking at it all from a more macro perspective and from the future point that we are in now compared to then. That was near the beginning of COVID. And so this is year, year and a half later, things have changed, things have developed, things have evolved. And so I'll be able to tie all those connections together without ruining the content itself. So just like with this episode in the past two, you can go back to season two of this podcast and get a lot more about this parallel between the Reformation and modern times and get a lot of really good information, really good history, really good parallels, really good applications to nowadays that I am not bringing out in these uh, three episodes that I've been doing. I'm I'm, again, pulling out from this content a very macro perspective that ties a lot of things together and brings it up to date. But I am not covering all of the information by any stretch that I had covered earlier in the podcast. So if you want more, then definitely go back. There's a lot more. You're not going to get a lot of repeat information other than just the overall uh, parallels and that kind of stuff. But a lot of new information that will be there for you, and the same will be true in these future episodes. And the same is true of Season 1, where there's a lot more detailed information compared to the first few episodes of Season 4 that we're in now. So, now that all of that is out of the way, I want to set the stage for this episode by looking at the generations of warfare and picking up 
from what I had brought up in relation to Marshall McLuhan's uh, content. So Marshall McLuhan was the one that talked about how the medium is the message. And uh, he had a book, The Medium is the Massage. And so there's kind of a play on words there, possibly accidental. But um, he said it worked either way because it's either the mess age or the mass age. And it's either the message or it's the massage of the uh, viewer and the participant. And so it's something that plays in a lot of ways. But anyway, the idea is that it's this new technology that is what changes society. It's not necessarily the content that you receive from that technology. While that does play a part, that doesn't fundamentally change society in the same way that the media itself does or the medium itself does. And one of the other things that he discussed that I will hopefully be tying into my framework that I have for the ages of man and historical cycles, that kind of stuff. But uh, it's this idea of audible societies versus visual societies. And so what he talked about, and again, I'll get into this more, so I'm just very briefly going to touch on this, but about how some societies are more audible. And when you think of audible. It's what you hear. You're hearing a sound in the distance. You're hearing something go on. Think about if you close your eyes and you just hear things around you, you're going to have to imagine what those things are. They're not very clear. You're going to have to make some assumptions. You're going to have some guesswork. You're going to pick up on a lot more. You're probably going to be a lot more observant with what you hear rather than what you see when your eyes are fixed on one thing. And then the comparison is the visual society. When you're looking at something, you see exactly what it is. You see its dimension. You see its place in space-time. You can identify it. It has a clear structure, and there's not a lot of ambiguity there. And so those are two very different ways of I guess, perceiving the world around you and various societies are oriented towards one way more heavily than another. And what I want to bring into this episode as we start off talking about generational warfare is that what Marshall McLuhan talked about is that we're shifting into a more audible age, that we can't have, are coming out of this visual age where it's all about logic and reason and facts and structure and hierarchy, these kinds of things, very visual things. And we're heading into this age that is a lot more audible. And that could partially be because of the media and the mediums that we are introducing through new technology. It could also just be a part of this cycle. And I think you'll see as I get into the cycles and patterns how it is a cycle. And yeah, we're going to touch on that from so many different angles and so many different uh, people that have proposed this throughout uh, the ages, really. But with this idea of shifting into an audible society, this is something that is less material, less structured, less hierarchical. This is something that is more ambiguous, more open to interpretation. And if you think about the idea of relative truth, for example, or gender fluidity, or the uh, power of big tech versus the state. The state is the structured hierarchy. The state is the visual apparatus. Big tech is the audible apparatus. So hopefully that should uh, get a mental picture in your head. And again, we'll get into a lot of this a lot more in the next few episodes, but uh, that really should at least phase us into this idea of generational warfare, because uh, like everything that you will see, it all connects and it all is telling the same story. So with generational warfare, the rough, very overview of this would be that first generation warfare would be uh, bad, where battles were fought by massed manpower using just direct attacks with uniformed soldiers. Second generation warfare is early modern tactics where you start having the rifled musket and into the machine gun and using indirect fire, these kinds of things. It's not necessarily that people are just lining up in a row and charging each other, but uh, there's a little more strategy involved, different technologies and weapons, that kind of thing. And then third generational, third generation warfare is something that uses late modern technology-derived tactics of leveraging speed, stealth, and surprise to bypass the enemy's lines and collapse their forces from the rear. 
So uh, at least that is the description that I'm reading to you. Hopefully that is obvious. But uh, this is a, a different tactic. It's not as upfront. It's using a little more cunning rather than pure brute force. And uh, yeah, we'll get into that as well. You should remember that if you're a longtime listener. So then the fourth generation warfare is something that would be looked at as postmodern, so to say. And that is a more decentralized form of warfare. And it blurs the lines between war and politics, combatants and civilians, these kinds of things. And at least the description that I'm pulling just basically off of Wikipedia, so it's nothing that you should give all that much weight to, but it at least does clear uh, paint a clear picture of how this is viewed from a mainstream perspective. Um, it does say that uh, part of this blurring of the lines between war and politics, combatants and convili- uh, civilians, is due to the nation-state's loss of their near-monopoly on combat forces returning to modes of conflict common to pre-modern times. So I'm not quite sure. I'm not going to actually read the paragraphs about what they are trying to say there, but they are talking about something that I am as well, uh, and that would be some loss of power and influence from the nation-state And that is what's going on. And so you think of guerrilla warfare and uh, strike teams going in, that kind of thing. That would be more fourth generation warfare. Now, fifth generation warfare. And if I remember right, I might have referenced this last episode of the one before last, and I called it fourth, but it's fifth. So uh, I will correct myself now if I did misspeak, and I'm really not sure. But uh, fifth generation warfare is something that is done primarily through non-kinetic military action, so not using direct physical force, but using things like social engineering, misinformation, cyber attacks, and emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and autonomous systems. This should all sound very familiar to you. It's a war of information and perception. That is the idea of fifth-generation warfare. And if you haven't guessed, uh, fifth generation warfare is modern warfare. That's that's the time period that we're in now. So it, even though we look at something like the Russia-Ukraine conflict going on right now, that is a war of physical force. And I have covered that from a physical, material, visual perspective in previous episodes. But... Uh, I guess I probably didn't give enough caveats when I did that. That is not the full picture, and that is not the main picture. That is not the main thing going on here, because that is the third-generation to fourth-generation warfare aspect. That's the 2D aspect, at most 3D. And as you uh, look at this from a... Uh, I guess, a perspective of more depth and more layers and bring this up to date with the way the, the way all reality is today, given the way societies are and humanity is and technology is, all of these kinds of things. The reality that we're living in today is not one that stops at fourth generation warfare. It is one that gets into fifth generation warfare, and that is the main aspect that we will see. And so if you look at this idea of fifth generation warfare with social engineering, misinformation, cyber attacks, artificial intelligence, information and perception being the key tools and the key uh, manipulations that are going on, that is the battleground, is the mind of the masses. It's, it's getting control of the narrative. That is the war. And you should, as I am describing this, realize that, hey, World War III is already going on. That is something that is currently happening. That is not something that is happening in the future. That is something that is happening today. Fifth generation warfare has been going on on a mass scale, a worldwide scale as well, for minimum, at minimum, the past few years, if not the last decade or two. And so even though we saw physical uh, conflicts in the Middle East, we are seeing it currently in Ukraine with Russia. We will probably see some more as other countries might get into this. And you go again back to the uh, go back a layer uh, with a little less depth and look at it from a geopolitical standpoint with the West trying to keep hold of their power and their empire and solidify that. And so they might push a physical war in order to do so. But that's not the main point. The main point is not the physical territory of the Ukraine at all, not at all. 
the point, even though that is a big deal and people are dying and that's horrible. And uh, I am not praising this or, or throwing it away as information that doesn't really affect anything and we shouldn't think about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the main point is not going to be physical and material. The main point is going to be something in line with fifth generation warfare. It's controlling the narrative. It's social engineering. It's it's this aspect of information and perception from the masses and getting control of their minds. That's what's happening. So regardless of some physical plot of land, that's not the point. And so this should tie us in well with last episode, I talked about digital feudalism, which came out of uh, some of the ideas that Marshall McLuhan talked about as well. But it's this idea of how in the feudal system, back to our parallel historically, and to this uh, McLuhan-esque idea of digital feudalism, in the time period of the Middle Ages, in the, fe- the feudal system then was set up based on physical land. It was actual physical property and physical resources, whereas digital feudalism that we're in today is virtual space. It's these virtual plots of land, and the resources are not physical. The resources are things like attention and data and information, these types of things. And so uh, that is the world we're living in today. Again, you should see how this is more audible versus visual. This is more fifth generation warfare versus fourth generation warfare. This is the world that we live in today. So with all of that in mind, it is time to get into the rest of the main content for this episode, getting back to our historical parallel that should have set the stage very well, and you should be in the right mindset for digesting this material. Now, getting into this, let's go back to the church. So in this time period, let's say the Reformation, getting into the Thirty Years' War, that's what we're focusing on in this episode. The church was losing power and influence through decentralization. And that was brought through corruption and reaction. So that's what was going on at that period in time. The decentralization was the breakup of the church, the Protestant-Catholic split, and further and more splits and schisms and all kinds of stuff going on there. And a lot of this stemmed from corruption that was going on and reactions to things that the church was doing. Now, look at that today, where the state is viewed similarly with similar effects. You have things like uh, the corruption that is seen at the presidential level, the executive level, as well as all the way down the chain, all the way down to local police, and those issues being brought to a mass national, if not global scale. And, and you have a reaction to that. You have things like various states in the United States that were going against federal marijuana laws up to a decade ago or so. This isn't brand new. You had gay marriage as an issue that it, it did become legal, but that's only been within the past decade or two. And before that, there were states that were going against the uh, federal laws that were around at the time. You have the issue of sanctuary cities in the U.S. where certain cities have allowed uh, immigrants that are technically illegal immigrants to live in their cities without any repercussions and without coming down and deporting them. You have things with COVID mandates where you've got states like Florida, for example, that are going against or did go against some of the federal mandates that were coming down, and they did something different against that. So again, it's this reaction. It's a reaction that is splitting apart in in a way to a degree. This is not the Civil War, but this is a decentralized version, so to say, where you have this power and influence of the federal government where it used to be what they say said went, period. And now it's starting to break up and you're starting to get this decentralization of political power. And that is something that has been going on and will continue to go on to a much greater degree would be my argument. Just like with the Reformation, you had further and further splits and schisms and uh, different groups that split off and Protestant sects and all kinds of stuff. And so that's what's going on today. Today, there is less faith in the feds in general. There is more faith in local potential, local politics. And this is the same truth that you see in the historical period of the Reformation, where the church, it didn't disappear. It just fractured. It just decentralized. And so 
on on a ground level, the common person, it's not that they all of a sudden didn't believe in Christianity, because we're talking about Western Europe and Christendom, where just about everybody was a Christian of one type or another. It wasn't whether or not you believed that the Bible was true and that the Christian God was God. It was about how you interpreted that Bible and what are some of the theological debates about that Christian God. And so the same is true today. It's not not that people no longer believe that you should have a government or that the state has any right to rule over us or anything like that. It's just that how people view the state is changing, and they're viewing it from much more of a local level, just like when you had these splits with the church that came down to a much more local level. There are communities that split off, even left countries, and started their own uh, groups. You have the beginnings of the American colonies is a good example of something similar to this. And that is what is going on today, where you have different, again, it's not theological, it's political. Politics is theology of the historical time. So you're having these political groups start to split off, kind of do their own thing, and you have that decentralization really happening now. You also could look at the pattern before the Middle Ages and Reformation and look at Rome. Rome is another good historical parallel and pattern that you could draw from, where you had over-centralization near the fall of Rome. You had an expansion of physical territory and bureaucracy, just like the church, and Christendom started to spread. It was a lot bigger territory. There was a much bigger bureaucracy near the end uh, period, that time period of the Reformation. You had a misuse of wealth, a misuse of war. You had corruption. Same thing was happening with the church, and same thing is happening today. Uh, This is a pattern. It is a pattern that happens over and over and over again. Now, one thing that I would like to pull out that I have mentioned briefly about this pattern of the fall of Rome and tying us into this period of the Middle Ages that leads to the Reformation. Well, you had the downfall of the empire, and when that empire fell, one of the key communities and structures that really made a huge difference in that time period was the monasteries. The monasteries played a very large role after the fall. These monasteries were largely self-sustaining but they still did need goods to operate. So uh, because of this, there was a lot of economic activity that occurred around these monasteries. So you had this one aspect that these monasteries were fairly independent communities of people that were largely self-sustaining. It was a place of learning. They stored a lot of literature and knowledge. It was a place of high literacy because they read and they wrote It was largely self-governing. This was, in a lot of ways, a remnant, the remnant. I've referred to a remnant, and there's many different uh, rabbit holes you can go down about the remnant. But uh, this was a remnant that had structure. And, And it wasn't just this independent unit that had no contact with the outside world. So you could think Amish, Mennonites, yeah, they'll be set if, you know, say, the world, you know, starts to crumble and things aren't going so well. However, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm referring to these monasteries, because these monasteries, like I said, they still needed a lot of goods. They weren't completely self-sufficient by any stretch. And so there would be traders that would come through. There would be merchants that would set up. There would end up being, especially as the, the as Rome fell and that structure, that large structure started to come down, you had cities that would start to develop around the outskirts of a monastery because of this need. The monasteries needed things. They had a structure. They were well set up. They were uh, a, a very vibrant community. And so you had people coming. There was uh, trade going on, economic activity going on. There had to be more people come in to support all of this. People needed food. People needed stuff. People needed shelter. And all of this was something that uh, created an alternative. It created a parallel system, so to say, as Rome fell, there was this thing that was already established. And so that is something that I'd really like to draw from, because in this modern parallel, uh, we do see a a rebirth of this idea of being more self-reliant and community-based. And I think that's a good thing. More self-reliance, community-based networks, these kinds of things are a good thing. Um, It would probably be an offshoot 
of the business world would be my guess. And this would be this parallel of the economic activity and trade and all of these kinds of things, markets, these kinds of things. We we need this economic activity, but it needs to be all-encompassing. It needs to be something with some sort of structure with a a firm community that is held together by ideological beliefs, these kinds of things. So that's, in my mind, what I am looking for as a solution as our modern Rome starts to fall. This would be something that could be the beginnings of of whatever is next, or it could be the remnant that holds on, or it could be an alternative to uh, some dystopia. And now would be the time to set this up. It's not that monasteries started after Rome fell. They were well established by that time period, which put them in this position to be a key aspect of that society. This is where something like agorism and the agora business idea that I've discussed a few episodes ago, this is where that would come into play, at least from my personal opinion and perspective. But overall, when we go back to the macro, as the state started starts to lose influence, corporations start to gain, just like as the church started to lose influence, the nobility and royalty started to gain that influence. And they're, they're going to do so using technology, ideology, and politics. And this would be the same, where part of the church falling was this technological shift, and that technology of the printing press, as well as some of the other aspects like the new accounting methods, and uh, when I went back to the Medici and merchant bankers and some of those aspects, the influence of the zero and the Arabic Arabic numerals, these kinds of things, these technologies started to make these changes, and they were a part of this change and this shift. It's also about politics today, and it was definitely about theology then. And that was part of, number one, how and why the church started to fall was through these theological debates, but also that's what the nobility used as an excuse to consolidate and to gain territory and land and to gain legitimacy in people's minds, these kinds of things, they would use theological arguments for that, and that had a lot of sway. It was a battle of ideology. It's it's what is your overall worldview? Who do you look to to supply your needs and your safety and these kinds of things? And this is where, as the church was falling, this ideology, this worldview, this perspective was changing and shifting as the church went down on the spectrum, you had the nobility, the royalty, your local lord started to go up in that spectrum. And the same is true as the state goes down, the corporate world goes up, and it's just this same pattern. So through warfare, through consolidation, mergers and acquisitions, and economic war, that's again, fifth generation warfare, that's what we're dealing with here. Through these techniques about perception, controlling the narrative, uh, information warfare, these kinds of things, global entities and corporations are taking some of the former responsibilities of the state and taking some of that power and influence that the state is uh, dropping off. State and politics remain. These things, again, are not going away, but they are divided. And so you have this new thing that is now coming into play. And as you look at the church, the church, let's go post-Reformation, post-30 years war, the church is divided up in a lot of ways. It does not have this role of being kind of the top dog on a macro scale, but it, it is still there and it is still very important, especially in this area we're looking at, Western Europe and Christendom. But as it broke up and the nobility and the royalty started to consolidate, they started uh, these new monarchies that started up. You had the new monarchy and the nation state that became a thing like it, like it had not been before. And so as we see the new thing come into play in today's world, that is the technocracy. That's the technate of some kind. And so the technocracy manages resources, it manages information, it manages populations, 
they will use political division as an excuse to break away and to fight, which is, again, what the nobility did. They used theology as an excuse to go to war against their neighbors and take their land and take their territory and use the church's legitimacy or a different church's legitimacy as there are breakups to give an excuse for just war, that kind of thing. And corporations will do and are doing these same things, where they'll use these political divides as an excuse to censor or filter information or to take over a company. Elon Musk is talking about taking over Twitter right now, and it's all about this political aspect of censoring speech and filtering content, that kind of stuff. He wants to do it differently. And so... You've got a lot of this going on today. So some other political aspects that are and will be used are things like climate change and inclusiveness and sustainable development and the Great Reset. All of these are these aspects that are political, but largely they are a way to gain power, to gain control, to legitimize certain moves and consolidations and power grabs, these kinds of things, make money, wealth, power, influence, these kinds of things. That's what's going on. And these political issues are being used like theology was being used by the nobility as an excuse to consolidate, to go to war, to gain more territory. This is how corporations are gaining more market share. This is how they're gaining more dominance in their sector. This is how they are gaining that influence and that power that is draining from the state. So when I'm talking about the technocracy that will be in effect, it could be a structured thing where uh, it will actually be called the technate or the technocracy or some term, and it will have identifiable people or companies or states or whatever. But I, I would probably lean against that, that that's probably not the way it's going to go. And we'll get into that with the historical cycles and patterns where we're shifting into something more immaterial, less structured, more rhizomatic, so to say. And so... My guess is that's not the case. But as far as leading candidates for who is the nobility today, and out of that nobility, we will have this technocracy that will be playing a large role in the management of our society in the future. And so the leading candidates, I would say, would be big tech. And big tech does include more than just Google and Amazon. It's it's Google, Amazon, Netflix. It is Microsoft. It's Elon Musk. It's Jack Dorsey. It's all of these types of people and corporations. That would be big tech, and that is going to be where a lot of this comes from. You also have the banking angle, the monetary system. The old monetary paradigm is coming down. We'll have a new one, but more than likely, you will have a lot of the same players. So you've got the Bank for International Settlements, and uh, institutions of that nature. But the old bankers, they're probably not just going to disappear, and they will probably have a role to play. They're, They're going into and have already gone into the digital age. They are ones that are using this technology for their own benefit, and they will be the ones that will probably create the new monetary paradigm, the new economic paradigm. They will be the backbone of moving the wealth and the money like the merchant bankers were. And so you'll probably have something out of that. You've also got the foundations that, again, are not necessarily political or state entities, but the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, these types of institutions, they will probably uh, be the source of some of what turns out to be the technocracy. Again, the nobility was a very broad group of people, lords and kings and royalty and people of this nature, and even including the merchant bankers like the Medici who were in many different worlds and many different aspects of society as far as a ruling aspect is concerned. And so we've got the same today where the nobility, so to say, the parallel to the nobility is coming from big tech. It's coming from the banking world. It's coming from the foundation. It's even coming from these global groups like the World Economic Forum or Davos, Bilderberg, these types of groups, uh, Bohemian Grove, that these are uh, other aspects of non, at least not directly political institutions, they are on a global scale, and they are all about 
this fifth generational warfare, controlling the narrative, controlling information and manipulating masses, social engineering, these kinds of things. And I've covered a lot of that in the past, so won't get into that. But when you when you think about the nobility of this historical time period and out of the nobility, it wasn't every single noble, but out of the nobility, maybe it was one in 10, or I have no clue what the rates were, but out of that came the royal families and the monarchies and the heads of the nation states. And as they consolidated, the nation state became a thing. And it wasn't just one nation state. There were many nation states. And even just looking in this area of Christendom, Western Europe, uh, there there were multiple units, multiple nation states. There could be multiple technates or technocracies or multiple groups that make up the technocracy, something of that nature. But the nobility and the parallel for that in modern times will likely come from these sources. They'll come from the non-political world out of more of the corporate world. But again, it's not. I'm not naming a lot of corporations. Uh, the, the banking world is not corporations. The World Economic Forum is not strictly corporations. The foundations are not directly corporations in the same way you would think of them like a Microsoft. The Gates Foundation is very different than the Microsoft uh, Corporation. And so you have big tech that is more corporations, but it's also people. So you have someone like Jack Dorsey that has Twitter and also had Square. And I think now he's out of Twitter and only in Square. But uh, same thing with Elon Musk, where you've got SpaceX, and you've got Tesla, and you've got the Starlink satellites, and you've got all these different things from this one person. So it's it's really interesting how it's manifesting in many different ways. But but that is this, this is the beginning of where the technocracy comes from. And we're seeing it play out. Elon Musk is a really good example because the technocracy is all about using data and technology to manage resources. That is the point of technocracy. If you go back to the ideas in the 20s and 30s and 40s, that's what it was all about. And they said that they needed to know all of the information about what people bought and sold, what they said, what they did, all of these things so that they could compute how to allocate resources, and they could do that fairly and efficiently and effectively. Well, what is Elon Musk proposing? Again, digital world, let's shift our perspective here, fifth generation warfare idea. Uh, Elon Musk has proposed that Twitter be run by an algorithm where they are no longer filtering or curating what the content is and what content you see, but it is all being fed through an algorithm. And so it's all about using the data for a more objective perspective to manage the resources. Resources for something like Twitter would be the users, the the attention, the data, the information, these kinds of things, these uh, digital uh, realms, these digital virtual plots of land, so to say. And those would then be managed in this way that is leveraging technology and data and information and these kinds of things. This is the idea of technocracy on a very small and specific scale. So going back to the historical aspect of the church, look at the church post 30 years war. This is when the nation states start to develop. And the nation states, again, were different from the nobility, but they were an evolution of the nobility, an evolution of royalty. This was the new system. That system grew through the Reformation and the Enlightenment all the way up into more modern times, and it corrupted majorly by, let's say, the 1900s. And now that institution is failing. And again, this follows the pattern of Rome. This follows the pattern of the church. It follows lots of patterns. And so this is what's going on today. It's been the paradigm that we've existed under since roughly the time period of the Reformation, and that is starting to change. We're starting to get a new paradigm. And times of change on this scale are typically pretty turbulent. Historically, these things have not gone smoothly. You can think of the examples we're using here, the fall of Rome, the Thirty Years' War. These weren't exactly peaceful and smooth times. There were a lot of disruptions to everyday life on a major scale, a micro scale, macro scale, on all levels. It was a fractal manifestation of turbulence, so to say. And that's what we will likely go through today. It will just look 
look different. And I, I think that's a good thing because if it followed the old, uh, the old aspects and the old way that things went down that were more material and physical, that would mean a World War III with ground troops in every major first world country or something to that extent. And that's not what we want. That would not be a good thing. That would be horrible. And so while it will likely still be turbulent and it will likely be rough, it will likely be more immaterial and it will follow this aspect of an audible perspective or fifth generation warfare where we're talking about economics and information and things of of this nature. And that is where we're going to get a lot of the turbulence. But if you think about something like the Great Depression, that was still really hard. It wasn't a giant physical war in America, but it was something that affected every American and was a difficult time to go through. And so that's more along the lines of what we will likely see. Again, I can't tell the future, but looking at these patterns and cycles and parallels and all these things, when you start to see all of them lining up and painting the exact same picture over and over and over and over again, then I can at least say that statistically and historically, this is what we're likely to see. And so I will get more into that as we get into these historical cycles and patterns. This this is kind of a primer for that. Looking at this one specific parallel is kind of a primer for being in this mindset. And it points out a lot of similar things. Again, they all stack on each other. And so uh, that'll be really interesting as we get into that even more. But again, these issues will be economic, they'll be social, they'll be political, they'll even be religious, and it will affect everyone. So we, seeing this ahead of time, should take reasonable precautions. That would be what I am preaching. That's what I would propose. That's what I would recommend to all listeners and to all non-listeners alike. Uh, But what I would say is that this is not about isolating and this is not about expecting a zombie apocalypse. We, we need to be realistic, and we need to do something that is going to protect us and our families and our communities and our friends, but in a way that does not isolate us and does not harm us should the future that we expect not come to pass. So I guess a way that I would look at it, my personal goal would be that me and my family survive an apocalypse. If there is something crazy, a cataclysmic fall of all society, all technology, everything, and it's chaos, if that happens, I want us to survive. And I think I have set us up well to at least be statistically likely to make it given an apocalypse of some kind. Um, But if we were to just get a depression, maybe a major depression and dystopian outcomes, then I want us to at least maintain our lives and the the protection, the safety, the economic output, these kinds of things, uh, our, our diets, all of these kinds of things. I want to be able to maintain that even given a depression or a dystopia that comes into play. And if we just get slight disruptions and it's nothing major. We don't go through a horrible depression. We don't have a major dystopia come into pass. Uh, nothing like that. Definitely nothing apocalyptic. We just have some supply chain issues and some political issues and uh, these kinds of things. Then I want to be able to thrive in that situation. And so that's what I'm focusing on. I want to set myself up. I want to set my family up, my community up, uh, whatever impact I have as an individual. I want to put my my time, my resources, my wealth, all of these things into uh, setting us up to thrive under disruptions, to maintain in a depression or dystopia, to survive an apocalypse. That's what I want to do. If I put all of my efforts and resources and time into thriving in an apocalypse, then more than likely, if there wasn't an apocalypse, I am going to be worse off than I would have otherwise, uh, probably to a very large degree. And that's not a good thing. And uh, an apocalypse is statistically not the most likely thing, although I would not rule it out by any means. It is, I would argue, not statistically likely compared to 
a depression or a dystopia were definitely slight disruptions. Slight disruptions are almost guaranteed. So I definitely want to be well prepared for that and set up to thrive in that situation. But it's also very likely we're going to have a depression or we're going to have a dystopia. We're going to have some warfare. These things are very likely to happen as well. And so I want to set myself up to do well in that situation. But since uh, an apocalyptic scenario, something crazy going down, let's say nuclear war or who knows what, an EMP that wipes out all electronics, these types of things are definitely still possible. I want to also be at least prepared where my family will not be starving. And that is something that I am doing as well. So that's just my personal opinion on how we approach this and how we apply this. We need more localized supply chains. We will not be able to rely on these macro, large-scale, very centralized supply chains if there are disruptions or a major depression or something of that sort. We also need natural production methods for, especially for food, but even for building materials and all kinds of different random things like that. We, we are not going to be able to count on if we have uh, some sort of major depression or major disruptions come to pass. We'll probably not be getting a lot of these specialized parts from China and from halfway across the world. The international shipping will probably look a little different. Uh, we're probably going to need to use things that are more local, more natural, and stuff that we can get our hands on a lot easier and a lot more reasonably. We will need community networks for many, many reasons. I think that is a very important aspect where it's not just about the, in the digital age, having these digital networks and digital communities where we have uh, people that we bond with uh, across the interwebs and they can be halfway across the world. Well, that's wonderful. But uh, let's say we have some issues and I need someone face to face. Well, they're not there because I don't have that local community. And what about the aspect of building a relationship and a bond and trust that you don't get in the digital version? The digital version is a mimicry of the physical version, and it's not as good. And so if we are relying solely on the digital and the virtual, then we're missing out a lot. We're missing out on some depth. We're missing out on some value. And so we need to build the physical community networks as well as possibly using these digital and virtual ones as well, such as this podcast I'm doing right now. I am participating in fifth generation warfare by uh, trying to uh, control and manipulate the narrative and trying to uh, use perception and information in a way that will uh, orient people to view things a certain way. And so that's what I'm doing. And uh, that's something that we all should be doing on one level or another. I also think that ideology or spirituality, religion, that these could play very important roles. Historically, in a time of disruption and catastrophe, the church has thrived and done very well. That is historically the way things go. Basically, people look to something bigger than themselves, something bigger than whatever is falling apart around them. And they find comfort and solace. They find community. They find structure. They find all of these things that they are looking for. And so uh, that is something that plays a very big role as well. And so as we look to what is coming, and I, I can give you the systematic aspects of um, of how this all plays out systematic in the sense of, you know, the this happens, then that happens, and that happens, and this is the framework for it, but systematic as well as what are the systems that we are coming out of and coming into. But in addition to that, uh, there is this, uh, I would argue, probably a more important aspect of how does this affect you? How does this affect me? How does this affect our families, our communities, these kinds of things? And what, what do we do about it? And so that is something that we always need to make sure we don't lose sight on. We, we can't lose sight of uh, focusing on uh, what we can do, what we can apply, how we can prepare ourselves, these kinds of things, whether horrible things happen or not. We want to be set up to do well either way. And uh, that does take a little bit of work, that takes a little bit of research, that takes a little bit of thought and mental power, some time, some resources, and that is what I would encourage. That's what I try to encourage on the show as a whole. But 
I think that is all that I can do for today's episode, and I will just end it there, and we will pick up next time uh, moving away from this parallel of the Reformation and moving into uh, looking at technology and the shifts going on today and us shifting into this idea of a technocracy and more technocratic rule and looking into these kinds of things. And uh, again, this will also get into historical patterns and parallels, all this kind of stuff. And so that's where we're headed. We'll get into some of that kind of content next time. And I think you will really enjoy the next few episodes coming up as we get into these kinds of things. So I will say that uh, we had at least one Patreon member that joined the gang, Kevin. So thank you very much, Kevin, for joining up. I really do appreciate that. He joined on Patreon and has already left some comments there, which, uh, to be honest, the Patreon community is not very active and there aren't very many people there. So I hope you're not let down, Kevin. But uh, I will read them and I do get them and hopefully I'll be able to uh, provide things that you're looking for on there. But most people that donate to the show seem to be doing so in a more detached manner where they want to support financially. They like having this content and this resource available for everyone else for free, and they want to pitch in a little bit to support that and make that a reality. So that typically tends to be the thing. But I definitely welcome people that are interested in uh, being more actively involved and creating community in this virtual sense and these kinds of things. I think that's very good, good to open up that dialogue and can be helpful in a lot of ways as well. So in addition to supporting the show monetarily, and there are others that do so. So thank you to all of you others that do so as well. You definitely deserve a big shout out for that. But in addition to that, you can send me feedback, you can send me questions, you can uh, give some input, and ideally, you email that to me at rfoundations at protonmail.com. I would definitely encourage you to do so. That is another way that you can support this show uh, without having to give any dollars or monies or cryptos of any kind. You can just do it by uh, giving words and thoughts and ideas that can be extremely helpful, just as helpful, I would argue, in different ways. There's also the uh, method of leaving a rating or a review. That is something that is always very helpful. I have not actually did look right before recording this. I do not see at least any recent reviews, but the way the way the internet is decentralizing, uh, it's getting a little interesting where you've got Apple that shows a set of reviews and then you can look at uh, some other podcaster of some kind, podcast player, and it will only have its own reviews. And then some other compilation that brings in a lot of podcasts, and it's its own independent site, and it only shows reviews on its specific platform. And so, yeah, it gets a little complicated. The website is something that's different than the podcatchers. And so, yeah, it gets a little interesting. But uh, that is another reason why it is very important to leave ratings and reviews, especially on all these different things, so that someone doesn't pull it up on, on one podcast player and see, oh, there's no reviews, no ratings. I don't think I'm going to do this. Uh, No, we want people to at least try out this content, at least be exposed to these ideas uh, because we are fighting a fifth generation warfare campaign. And that's part of what we are in. And so we want to be successful in our endeavors as we do so. So with that, I think I am going to be officially done. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for all your support as a listener, as a supporter, as a patron, as all of these things. Thank you very much. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.